This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And in particular, the seven factors of awakening. We began the discussion with mindfulness as being the first of these factors of enlightenment. And the one which primes the pump. It's mindfulness which leads to all the rest. So this is from the texts. Abiding thus mindful, and here the Buddha means abiding thus mindful of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of dhammas, of all the categories of experience. Abiding thus mindful, one investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. So it's this inquiry, what is called investigation of dhammas. It's the truth discerning wisdom factor, which is the second factor of enlightenment. There's mindfulness, there's investigation of dhammas, and it's this wisdom factor that has the power to cut through delusion and ignorance in the mind. Then the Buddha continues in his description of these factors, he says, in one who investigates and examines what arises with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry to it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless tireless energy is aroused, on that occasion the the energy enlightenment factor is aroused and one develops it, and by development it comes to fulfillment. So mindfulness leads to investigation. Investigation and inquiry leads to the arousing of energy, tireless energy. This is the third factor of awakening, of enlightenment. And in Pali, the term is virya. 
virya or energy is understood in the scheme of things to be that quality or factor that is the root of all accomplishment. It's energy which is the root of all achievement. And in this way, it is in direct opposition to sloth and torpor. Now, it's fairly obvious that energy is needed to bring any endeavor that we undertake to fulfillment, to completion. We need energy in order to do that. But how we understand what this quality is and how we apply it takes a great deal of care. Because how we apply it and how we understand energy can determine whether it is the source of joyful interest, which is in fact the next factor of awakening, is our use of energy leading to joyful interest, or if not understood correctly, it can become the source of great discouragement and frustration. It's critical that we take a look at this because it's such a fundamental force in our whole spiritual path. Now, energy, or virya, is called a variable mental factor. What does that mean? It means that it can be associated with either wholesome or unwholesome states. And we all know that people can use their energy in a variety of ways. Sometimes people use their energy for harm and sometimes for good. But on a more subtle level, further examination, we see that even when we're using our energy for a skillful purpose, for a wholesome purpose, we need to see if we're applying it in a skillful way. Because even when our purpose is noble, our purpose is wholesome, If we're not applying it skillfully, then we get into trouble. We can get a sense of the many nuances of virya, of what this term means, through looking at the various ways it's been translated into English. Because when you read the translations, different people translate it Uh, quite differently, each one with its own particular nuance of meaning. So it's been translated as energy. It's been translated as effort, as strength, as courage, as vigor, as perseverance, as persistence, And each one of these English terms points to a different facet of this particular quality in the mind, this particular factor of awakening. 
So tonight I'd like to explore some of these different meanings and see how we can apply them both in our meditation practice and in our lives. So virya in its most basic meaning is energy, which means the capacity for activity. It's the power that we have in both the body and the mind to do something. It's the energy to do, the capacity for action. And this energetic capacity manifests or shows itself uh, in different ways. So one, one aspect of this energy, and it's mentioned in the texts, it functions to shore things up. It's like reinforcing a levee, you know, in times of a flood. We shore it up. Last week I mentioned this text, The Questions of King Melinda, where Nagasena, an Arhant monk, is having Dharma dialogues with this Greek king of ancient Bactria, country now in Afghanistan. And they're very interesting dialogues on a wide range of topics. In this book, The Questions of King Melinda, Nagasen is talking about this aspect of virya. He says, Just as your majesty, someone might shore up a house that was falling down with an extra piece of wood, and thus being shored up, that house would not fall down. Even so, your majesty, virya has the characteristic of shoring up. Now, this is the most important line here. Shored up by virya, no skillful dhammas are lost. So that's what virya gives to us. When it shores up the mind, when we're using energy in that capacity, it keeps wholesome dhammas from being lost. And the Buddha emphasized this aspect and the importance of virya in this aspect. In a few lines of the Dhammapada, and one which is so appropriate to all of us, he said, when one practices, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. So this is really important. It's not that wisdom is something some commodity that we get and then we have, it's much more alive and organic. And when we practice, it grows in our minds and lives. And when we don't practice, it wanes. And that's precisely why we need virya. We need this quality of energy, the shoring up quality, so that no skillful dhammas that we have cultivated are lost. So this ties into another nuance of virya, and that is its quality or aspect of strength. So again, this is from another sutta. And what is the faculty of strength? Here the noble disciple dwells as one who has produced strength, virya, 
for the sake of abandoning unskillful dhammas and arousing skillful ones, one is firm, of steady valor, unrelinquishing in purpose with regard to skillful dhammas. Now, so this is the arousing of strength of mind for a particular purpose. For the sake of abandoning unskillful dhammas and arousing skillful dhammas. How do we do this? By being firm of steady valor. I like that. Unrelinquishing in purpose with regard to skillful dhammas. So what the Buddha is highlighting here is both the critical importance of virya, of energy, as a power, a force in the mind. This is a critical aspect of our minds to understand. It's a source of power, this quality of virya or energy. But he's also highlighting the importance of putting it to wise use. We can use energy for a lot of different things. The Buddha is saying energy as an enlightenment factor is used for the relinquishing of unwholesome states and the cultivation of wholesome ones. So it's a specific use of this power that we have. There's another aspect of virya. There's the shoring up or reinforcing so that no skillful dhammas are lost. There's the quality of strength in the mind. There's another aspect of virya, which is one that powerfully engages our hearts on this spiritual journey of ours. And that is the manifestation of virya as courage. And it's helpful to look at what does courage mean in terms of a spiritual practice? I mean, the word in English is derived from Latin for heart. You know, and so we can think of courage as being strength of heart. And while sloth and torpor The nature of sloth and torpor is to retreat from difficulties. That's what happens when sloth and torpor is in the mind. In the face of difficulty, we retreat. The nature of courage is just the opposite. Courage is actually energized by difficulties. It's inspired by challenges. You know, and it even seeks them out. Courage is that quality that says, in the face of difficulty, yes, this is something that I can work with. This is something that I can be with. With courage, we rise to the occasion of challenges with the feeling, yes, I can accomplish this. With courage, we're not discouraged 
by how difficult a task is. And we're not discouraged by how long a task might be or a journey might be. Now, one of the strongest, courageous declarations uh, was made by the Bodhisattva in his quest for Buddhahood. And it's this very famous statement where he said, let only my skin and sinews and bones remain and let my flesh and blood in the body dry up. I shall not permit the course of my effort to stop until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, and human exertion. (laughs) That's planting the flag. I mean, that's the statement of tremendous, courageous effort. Well, we may hear this and think, yes, that kind of courageous determination is fine for a Buddha to be. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain, let my flesh and blood dry up. I won't stop until I have accomplished what can be accomplished. I mean, we we may think, yeah, that's fine for Bodhisattva, but it may seem very far away from anything that we're capable of. And while it's true, we may not yet have quite the bodhisattva's resolve, still there are many examples of ordinary people exercising great valor and great courage in pursuit of their goals. It's not so far off. Sometimes it's in very individual ways, and sometimes it's in ways that really can change the world. Just last week, I was talking with a staff person. I had just come back from a bike ride, exercising my courageous effort. (laughs) And so I was just outside the office up at the retreat center, and one of the staff, we got into talking about, you know, exercise. And and this this person had been in the Army uh, sometime before coming to IMS, And he told me about kind of a situation when he was in the army and he was out in some army base, I forget exactly, I think in the desert in California. And he volunteered, I mean, they were asking people to volunteer, but he volunteered uh, to run this 26-mile marathon. But it wasn't just running a 26-mile marathon. It was running this marathon with a 35-pound pack in full military gear through several, several miles of which were in deep sand. So you can imagine what running in that is like. And I said, why did you volunteer for this? <laughs> and he said he just he wanted to. He just wanted to test the limits you know, of his mind and what he could do. And he said he was pretty fine until about mile 13. And then you know, all that doubting mind came in. And obviously, he must have been pretty exhausted by then. 
and all those thoughts, and there were kind of all-terrain vehicles, you know, going by the runners to take those who were kind of dropping by the wayside back to rest stations. And so this voice in the mind, you know, why don't you just, (laughs) okay, you've done enough, you know, get in one of these vehicles and go back to rest. But he said, he just met the challenge of that doubt. He met the challenge of that kind of retreating mind and somehow gathered the strength to continue and finish. And when he was describing that, he said, first of all, he was just very interested in watching his mind, you know, and whether he was giving in to those voices or not going to give in to them. And his description was such a classic illustration of the power of virya. Right at that moment, you know, when all these doubting voices came and wanting to give up, virya came to shore up you know, it was like coming as reinforcements to again re-energize the mind so he could actually finish. And most remarkably, and this is what really impressed me, he volunteered to do the same run the following year, <laughs> which <laughs> was pretty amazing. It's just a very good example to me of how our mind and different factors work. You know, what are the factors that lead us to give up? What are the factors that actually renew our strength, renew our courage? That's what virya is. That's the function of it. In a much larger social scale, you know, we see this quality of virya at work. I was thinking... Just in thinking about this topic, kind of the image came to mind of the civil rights movements, movement in the 60s, you know, and Martin Luther King Jr. kind of doing these freedom marches in the face of unbelievable hatred and hostility And what it took to just keep going, to not retreat, that's the quality of virya. It's that quality of courageous energy. These stories inspire me, whether it's just of, you know, one person's individual rising to a challenge or something much bigger. They inspire me because... I think we don't often take the opportunity to challenge ourselves, to extend our limits, to see what is really possible for us, particularly in times of difficulty. You know, do we challenge ourselves to play at the edge? Saidao Utejaniya, who most of you have probably seen by now, in his little booklet, and you may have read this, he wrote, Avoiding difficult situations or running away from them does not usually take much skill or effort, but doing so prevents you from testing your own limits and from growing. 
The ability to face difficulties can be crucial for your growth. However, if you are faced with a situation in which the difficulties are simply overwhelming, you should step back for the time being and wait until you have built up enough strength to deal with them skillfully. So again, it's understanding the power and the potential of virya as we cultivate it, especially in this aspect of courage, being willing to play the edge, but also understanding how to do it in a balanced way. So virya as reinforcing or shoring up, virya as strength, virya as courageous energy. This brings us to the next aspect of virya, and this is a thorny issue. This is an issue that I think we all struggle with in our practice, and that is understanding the relationship between virya as courageous energy and virya as effort. What is effort? When is it balanced? When is it counterproductive? Effort is the expenditure of energy to accomplish some goal. That's what the word means. But the word in English has so many connotations for us that we really need to examine it carefully, examine how we understand what effort means and how we understand how to use effort or to make effort in a way that's skillful rather than unskillful. Effort becomes unskillful when there's a forcing of the mind. It's what I call efforting. You know, and I'm sure we've all had that experience in meditation where we're trying to make something happen. Rather than effort being made in the context of a relaxed mind. When there's a gaining idea, and a mind full of expectations rather than an openness and a receptivity, that's when effort becomes unskillful. I had a very striking experience of this, long-lasting experience. Many of you have probably heard me tell this story. It goes back to the early years of my practice in India. I had been there for some time. And at that particular period of my practice, I was studying with Goenkaji, you know, very, very strong and powerful teacher who taught the sweeping method, you know, just scanning the body up and down. And I'd been doing this for some time, and my whole body had opened up it just felt like a body of light. You know, every, all the solidity, all the tension dissolved. It was just like a flow of light. And I thought, boy, this is great. 
you know, it was possible to sit for many, many hours at a time, and it was just light. Then I had to come home to America. I had run out of money and needed to come home and work for some months. And I couldn't wait to get back to India to my body of light. Well, after a few months of being home, and I don't know if there was a cause-effect relationship here, but I went back to India and it was not a body of light anymore. It felt like a body of twisted steel. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, just everything felt knotted and tight and tense. And for the next two years, I was struggling to get back the body of light. They were the most difficult two years of my practice. It was so frustrating and so discouraging because I was in this unskillful effort. I was in this struggle to get something rather than the wholesome effort of simply settling back and opening to what was there. It took two years for me to learn this lesson. And that's why I'm telling you this story. (laughs) So that it doesn't take you two years. Right effort is not an ambitious striving. Skillful effort is the effort to be present for what is already here. Big difference. So as you're practicing, keep an eye out for the mind with an agenda, what I call the in-order-to mind. You know, we're doing whatever we're doing with the breath or the body or whatever we're watching. But there's a sense, I'm being mindful in order for something to happen, rather than simply being open and seeing what is there. So we need to watch out for this because many yogis, and I think all of us at different times, get caught in this efforting, and it's not helpful. Another way we can effort in an unskillful way is not, is not always kind of a future agenda, like I was doing with my body of light, but it can be in the very way the mind is holding the object. Whatever it is that we're noticing or aware of, are we holding on too tightly as if we're afraid we're going to lose it? That can be another way of forcing, of straining, of getting tense. The Buddha gave a very common example for how to modulate this quality of virya in terms of effort. You know, and he used the very famous example of tuning a lute. If it's too tight, the music is not right. The strings are too loose, it's not right. And so we know it's like we're tuning our own minds. We have to pay attention to how we're applying this quality of virya in the moment. 
if we're too tight, we need to relax, we need to soften, we need to settle back, open up. It's also possible to be too loose, where we're not arousing enough effort, we're not arousing this quality, and then we're just kind of sitting back in the name of relaxation, and the mind is just wandering off and not paying attention at all. So that's when we need to tighten the strings a little bit. This also is from Sayadaw's little booklet. One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched constantly. So it's just like a little kid. You know, you don't leave the two-year-old alone. And that's about (laughs) where our minds are. And I think it's actually helpful to think of the mind as being a two-year-old. Because that will give us a good reminder of how we should be with it. You know, gentle but firm. (laughs) So it needs to be watched constantly. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. And I think that really captures how we need to modulate effort, and how we need to investigate and explore what, what is the application of virya, of energy, in our practice. And it's not that somehow, you know, we find the perfect balance and then we have it. It's not like that. It's the cultivation of virya and the understanding of right effort is a very refined art. You know, in all the years of my practice, I still feel like it's an exploration of what right effort is about. And so we find this too tight, so we loosen. Too loose, so we tighten a little bit. And that's how we grow in the practice. One helpful experience to explore, and this this was really an interesting discovery for me in my meditation practice. And it's the experience of how effort creates energy. Now, usually we think that we need energy to make any kind of effort to do something. You know, if we're feeling low energy, there's often the feeling, well, I can't do it now. You know, I need to rest. And then when I have more energy, I'll be able to do whatever it is we want to do. And sometimes this is true. I mean, sometimes we actually do need to rest. And one example of this is the story of uh, Deepama's, you know, earlier life. And I think most of you are familiar with her. She She was one of our teachers in this very, very great yogi and, and you know, wonderful, wonderfully loving being. And she had a very, a lot of suffering in her early life. She lost two of her children, she lost her husband, and was stricken with grief. This is before her practice. And she said that she was basically bedridden for five years, but in that time, because of the grief, 
she had a very hard time sleeping, you know, so she was really sleepless. And finally, after all that time, she went to the monastery hoping for some relief from all the suffering. And she began the practice and really wanted to meditate. And she said for the first days or week of her practice, all she could do was sleep. And she found it so ironic that when she wanted to sleep, she couldn't. And when she wanted to be awake, all she could do was sleep. But obviously, it was, it's what was needed. You know, after all of that intense suffering, clearly the body, the mind needed that rest. So sometimes it is like that. But in more ordinary circumstances, you know, in the more ordinary energy swings of our day, I'm sure you're familiar with the experience of feeling low energy and then making the effort either for some physical or mental activity. You know, you go out and exercise, you engage in some mental creativity, and the very effort to do those things creates energy. And we finish doing them, and even though we started in a very low state, we end up feeling energized. Well, this principle applies in practice as well. So at times, when the energy is low, and you just have an intuition I don't really need to go to sleep here. You know, this is a chance to apply some courageous effort. Let me see, let me, let me play this edge a little bit. Just experiment with this sense of effort creating energy. You know, and you can do it in different ways in the context of a retreat. It might be sitting a little longer than you used to as a way of playing that edge. It might, taking, might be taking a non-moving vow for some period of time. Okay, let me sit. Let me die. I'm not going to move. You know? And just see, just to see what happens. It might be doing some longer walking periods. You know, if you do, if you're in the habit of just walking for half an hour, 20 minutes, whatever. See what happens if you walk for an hour. And again, it's just the sense of extending one's limits a little bit. Right? Not retreating from difficulty, but actually moving into them. Might experiment with the eight precepts. You know, maybe if there's kind of this fear of not having any food afternoon, you know, and, and you feel that as a limitation. The fear is a limitation. Experiment. Nobody has ever starved on eight precepts. You know, it may be difficult. You might well get hungry in the evening. What's that like? So it's this interest and willingness to explore. It's important that this kind of effort, this kind of courageous effort, is done in the right spirit. It has to be done from a place of willingness from a place of interest. Not from, I should be doing this, or this is right and this is wrong. That's when it goes into unskillful effort. 
Right? So I put out these possibilities just as possibilities to play with at the appropriate time. So that's on the side of extending limits. On the other side, maybe the mind is feeling really tight, you know, and we're the kind of people that are always making too much effort and a lot of ambitious striving and always pushing the edge and pushing our limits. Then the skillful thing might be to settle back, to relax, to create some space. And just in the settling back and making space and not with that kind of pushing the edge mentality, often just making the space allows the energy to arise in a very natural way. So there's no one way to do this. We have to really see and be sensitive to our own minds, to our own system, to our own patterns. And explore, explore for yourself this enlightenment factor of virya, how it can best be aroused, how we can best use it in the service of liberation. Okay, so these are all the different ways we can understand and apply virya. The question that then arises is, what is the cause for this factor of awakening to arise? What is the cause for virya to arise? Where does it come from? Because everything is conditioned by causes. So with all of these factors of enlightenment, we have to stand what they are, how they can be applied skillfully, and what brings them about. The proximate cause for the arising of virya as a factor of enlightenment is the quality of spiritual urgency. When we have that sense of spiritual urgency, that's what calls forth virya. And the Buddha talked of it. He said that with respect to these factors of awakening, we should be with them, and this is, this is from the suttas, we should be with them as a matter of vital concern. That's, it's a matter of vital concern. It's not a hobby. You know... And it's not kind of something we do simply because it makes, maybe makes us feel a little better. Of course, it may do all that, and that's useful in its own way. But as a factor of awakening, if that's what we're cultivating and developing, then they have to be related to with this vital concern. That's the attitude. And there are some reflections which... call this to mind, which remind us of this. So I'll just briefly mention a few of these reflections that bring forth this quality of spiritual urgency. 
the first of these reflections is just on the preciousness and rarity of our present circumstances. And whether we think of it in the context of many lifetimes or just the circumstances of this lifetime, we can see and appreciate how rare it is for all the conditions to come together that makes it possible for us to practice. A lot had to come together for us to all be here. There has to be the interest, there has to be the motivation, there has to be the resources, there has to be the leisure time, there has to be the support of friends and family. A lot comes together supporting us in this endeavor. And we often, I think, have the idea that, well, our lives are going pretty well and conditions will always be favorable. The Buddha is saying... It's not how it is. You know, any look at the world around us reveals the truth of uncertainty, the uncertainty of conditions. You know, from war, from violence, from natural disasters, from just the natural process of aging of our bodies, we don't know what's going to happen. So the fact that now we do have Everything come together in a favorable way. When we reflect on this, it arouses a sense of spiritual urgency or ardency. Yes, let me take best let me make best use of this time. Reflection on death is another powerful reminder that we use this time of favorable circumstances in a way that is truly of benefit to ourselves and to others. That we don't waste the time. You know, in the reflection on death, it's so obvious, and yet very often it's not in the forefront of our minds. But the simple reflection that every day our life is getting shorter. You know, our life is just running out. Can we hold this in mind? Can we have this in the forefront of our minds? You know, the Buddha would often address the bhikkhus. He would say, bhikkhus, there are trees. There are roots of trees. Meditate now, lest you regret it later. And it's just for this, because we don't know. And the time is precious, and it is getting shorter. And so when we reflect on this, again, it arouses that quality of virya in us. We can reflect that the end of all our various efforts at accumulation ends in dispersion. And in this reflection, it's helpful, I think, to look at what it is that we do spend our time accumulating in life. You know, where are we putting our energy? Is it the accumulation of wealth or possessions or people or relationships? 
or projects and great endeavors? You know, what is it that we spend time accumulating? Shanti Deva, in his great book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he had this one very pointed line. He said, All that may be wished for will by nature fade to nothing. You know, everything that we might wish for, no matter what it is, by nature will fade to nothing. So what is it, you know, and why is it, you know, that this, this tendency for accumulation is so strong? So we need to see it. We just need to look at it and reflecting that it all fades to nothing, again, arouses a kind of spiritual urgency in us. What is really of value? What is of importance? This, in turn, leads to the powerful reflection that the only abiding possession we have is the fruit of our own actions, the fruit of our wholesome and unwholesome deeds. That's what's carried with us throughout this life and in the Buddhist teachings from life to life. But we're in an amazing situation You know, by virtue of our paramis, of our past wholesome actions, we have the amazing good fortune of all being on what the Buddha called this great treasure island. And what is this great treasure island? That is this precious human birth. It's an island of treasures because it's a place as human beings where we can understand and practice the causes of happiness. So every happiness is available to us if we understand the causes for happiness. We're on this amazing situation of being in a place where we can both understand it and actually put it into practice. So this is a tremendous good fortune. Reflecting on this, again, arouses a sense of virya, of spiritual urgency. Yes, let me take advantage of being on this treasure island. And the Buddha summed up these possibilities these possibilities of every happiness in a very direct pith instruction. And he summed all his teachings up in three lines, three very short lines. He said, avoid what is unskillful, do what is good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhists. So when we reflect on this and we reflect on our good fortune of having the opportunity to practice these instructions, yes, avoid what is unskillful, do what is good, purify the mind. Again, this is a source for virya to arise in us. Okay, let me arouse the energy to actually do it. There's one last reflection. The preciousness of this human birth, 
the truth of death, the fact that all accumulation ends in dispersion, the gift of being able to practice, to understand the cause of happiness. And the last of these reflections is just to give some thought or contemplation to the defects of samsara. Of this, Samsara means perpetual wandering through conditioned existence. You know, and according to the teachings, it's like we just wander on throughout this life and from life to life, driven on by our wholesome and unwholesome karma through all the different realms of experience, from the lowest to the highest, back to the lowest again. And the example given is like a bee buzzing around in a jar, you know, from top to bottom and bottom to top. And we're just like that bee. What frees us from these endless cycles of ignorance and craving and becoming, all those forces which keep us going around and around and around, is the heroic power of virya. It's virya which gives us the strength, which gives us the courage, which gives us the energy to step off of this wheel to step out of the pattern of our conditioning, to be mindful of the flow of changing phenomena rather than being lost and carried away by it. So these reflections all lead to the arising of spiritual urgency. This feeling of spiritual ardor leads to the arising of virya, of strength and courage and energy and perseverance. And this factor of awakening then becomes the foundation, the root, the source of every accomplishment. This is our practice. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.